This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Did you know that Behind the Knife has a vascular surgery oral board review book? It is true. A couple of years ago, we realized that there were no resources to help us study for the vascular surgery boards. So Ravi Ambani, Andrew Wishy, and myself, Kevin Canary, put together a book based on the notes we made studying for the boards. It has 60 of the most essential cases in vascular surgery in a question and answer format, similar to what you might find in an oral board scenario. We start off with the diagnosis making, talk through the brief surgical procedure, and then cover the common complications for all 60 of the scenarios. Whether you're looking to excel in the wards or crush the boards, this book is for you. Check it out on our website or on Amazon. It is titled Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review, Behind the Knife Premium. All right, welcome to Behind the Knife. Uh, my name is Craig Brown. I'm joined by Frank Davis and Bobby Bolu, uh, who is one of our new faculty here at the University of Michigan. And Frank's actually new faculty, new uh, or now as well, recently graduated and is going to join the team now as an attending for the first time. So congrats, Frank. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk today about a case that we haven't talked about yet through this series, which is acute mesenteric ischemia. And this is actually mostly going to be based on a case that was pretty much not quite exactly uh, this case from the University of Michigan, and really use it as a mechanism to try to touch on some key points, mostly about presentation, workup, a little bit about diagnosis, although we won't hammer on that too much, and then early and post-operative treatment, both you know, kind of pre-operative and then post-operative management. I think the, the idea of acute mesenteric ischemia is that this is a really oftentimes devastating diagnosis with, generally speaking, pretty poor outcomes, and I think that the early management and prompt diagnosis are going to be the, the critical points here. Yeah, I think, Craig, that you bring up a lot of interesting points. And the first being that this is an uncommon cause of abdominal pain, but one that general surgery residents and vascular surgery residents will get called to evaluate a bunch. And that's because the effects can be so devastating. Really what you're looking at is this pain out of proportion that people typically talk about. And it's a pain that can sometimes be labeled as drug seeking in patients because you push on their belly and the pain doesn't seem to recapitulate what they're describing to you as their pain. But really the high index of suspicion that general surgery residents and vascular trainees and even attendings have to bring to this situation is is uh, necessary because the time at which a patient is diagnosed makes a difference. So if you have a diagnosis within 12 hours of the onset of pain and you're managing the problem, less than 20% of those patients will die. I mean, that's still a pretty high number. But if you escalate that to greater than 24 hours, which by the time you get the CT scan and you get patients through the system is not as uncommon as you think, that mortality escalates to over 80%, despite what you do. So I think this really puts an exclamation point on the importance of suspecting that it could be this relatively rare cause of abdominal pain and being aggressive about proving whether it is or not. 
Yeah. Thanks, Bobby. And I think it's um, that time, timely diagnosis is a critical portion of mesenteric ischemia. So I think it's really good for this podcast and this lecture for all the, the listeners to know about that out there. I think another aspect of acute mesenteric ischemia that we need to discuss is that it kind of encompasses a slew of vascular pathologies. So there can be arterial, there can be venous, and there can be both intrinsic occlusion and ex- extrinsic compression. So from an arterial standpoint, you have to worry about a combination of in-situ thrombosis at either the SMA or celiac origin. You can always can be concerned about arterial embolism and what is the proximal source, um, or you can have a vasculitis that occludes off the blood flow. So all of those are going to be your arterial aspects. You're also going to get venous mesenteric ischemia, which is more of an acute process. That's relatively rare, um, but in PAP patients who are hypercoagulable, they can also present in that manner. Um, last but not least, there can be some extrinsic compression that could co- uh, cut off the arterial blood flow. So whether it's a tumor or whether it's something else from a vascular pathology that then it com- compresses off the arterial blood flow that causes your presentation. Um, so despite all those different differentials, I think today we're going to mainly focus on arterial acute mesenteric ischemia and where that uh, arterial blood flow is acutely blocked off leading to the pathology. Right. And in that way, it makes sense to just do a brief review of the arterial supply to the gut. So the first branch that you're going to have coming off the aorta whose supply is dedicated to the gut is going to be your celiac artery that then branches to the splenic, the hepatic, and the left gastric. Then you have branching down off that, that, or branching after that, the SMA or superior mesenteric artery and the inferior mesenteric artery. And if you had to run through a CT scan and you only got one artery to choose to look at, I would say you look at the SMA because often that's the, the culprit for disease that's going to bring somebody in acutely and an acute onset of pain. Now, the nice part of all of these blood supplies is that there tends to be a pretty redundant supply between them and there's a lot of collateral circulation. If You look at the celiac to SMA communication, the gastroduodenal artery, which is a branch off the hepatic and a branch off the SMA coming from below. They form an arcade in the inferior pancreaticoduodenal artery. That can be quite robust in people who have a, especially a celiac occlusion chronically. and can actually be enough to supply the liver and the gut without any symptoms whatsoever. The collaterals we tend to think of that supply the small intestines are collaterals between the branches of the SMA and the IMA. There's most notably the marginal artery of Drummond, which is an artery that runs typically in uh, closer to where it branches to become the arcades to supply the intestines. But then there's sort of the like Lord of the Rings, Arc of Riolan name there. And that one is a little bit more proximal. Both of those can be arteries that allow for supply to an SMA distribution, despite a more proximal SMA occlusion. And so noting those on a CT scan and particularly their relative size can help give you some indication of both the acuity of the problem, namely you're not gonna have hugely robust collaterals in an acute onset problem without any underlying chronic disease and can give you a sense of the necessary collaterals to preserve while you're thinking about your revascularization strategy. Thanks, Bobby. So, um, you know, we're, we're talking about these three different kind of blood supplies to the foregut, midgut, hindgut. For the sake of time, we're not going to harp on IMA occlusion too much, uh, mostly because that, you know, tends to be clonic ischemia. Yeah, it happens a ton. It's just something you'll see maybe without any clinical sequelae. Yep. So today we'll focus on SMA uh, occlusion and stenosis, like uh, like Bobby said, and, and you know I think that this is a good jump off point to to talk about the case. So uh, Frank, you want to kind of walk us into the initial presentation of this patient? Yeah, yes, yeah, so of course. So the remainder of this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about 
a case-centric presentation and then use that as teaching points from how to manage these patients with acute mesenteric ischemia. So to kind of set this into context, the patient we're discussing today is an 81-year-old male who has a history of coronary artery disease, heart failure, as well as atrial fibrillation, who presented the ED with a three-day history of abdominal pain. His pain has increased steadily over that time, and the day of presentation started to have non-body, non-valious emesis. Um, he underwent a thorough physical exam in the ED that revealed palpable pulses of his upper and lower extremities, and he had tenderness um, to palpation of his abdomen, and it was very distended. But again, as Bobby correctly talked about earlier in this podcast, he was endorsing significant amount of pain despite what we're feeling on uh, abdominal examination on, on palpation. His laboratory evaluation was notable for leukocytosis in the 14 to 15, a lactic acidosis, which is 7.8, and an AKI 2.2. Uh, correctly, the ED was concerned about an intra-abdominal pathology had, that hadn't appropriately done the full workup yet, so they got a CT abdominal aortic angiogram that was noted for a complete occlusion of the SMA at the origin with some pneumatosis of a small bowel and portal venous gas. So, Bobby, you, you, I mean, your staff here at the University of Michigan and, you know, an ED consult resident or one of our vascular consult residents is calling you and saying, here's what we got. What is kind of your thought process to how to think about these patients? What do you do next type of thing? Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty common picture for how it happens. And there, uh, ED gets a lot of flack for doing CT scans on people, sometimes too early, sometimes without an appropriate workup that wouldn't involve ionizing radiation. But in these cases, you actually end up being super happy they got a CT scan because it pretty much tells the picture. Yeah. Um, it, first of all, physical exam, what you've been told about his history really points us towards a, a acute mesenteric ischemia. Embol embolic disease or an embolism, particularly from a heart and people with atrial fibrillation, accounts for about 50% of acute mesenteric ischemia. So right there, you got a pretty good suggestion that this person could have an aortic occlusive, or, sorry, uh, an arterial occlusive pathology going on, especially with their atrial fibrillation. The laboratory values that you get. So one of my uh, mentors, Dr. Black, did a study looking at the lactate that was on patients who were then formally diagnosed with acute mesenteric ischemia. The most common lactate was 1.8. So it being 7.5 here is strongly suggestive of a, a disease process that's well on its way and, and quite severe. So I don't get hung up on the lactate if it's normal. If it's abnormal, I start thinking about how quickly we can get to the operating room because otherwise we're gonna be in a really bad spot. The CT scan really seals the picture. I think one of the intrinsic points built into this and that sometimes comes up, if you have a strong enough suspicion of acute mesenteric ischemia and it's in the setting of AKI, you often have to make the decision whether it's gonna be the patient's kidneys or their life. And it's hard to be on dialysis if you're dead, which we talk about a lot. And so if you don't survive the pathology for which you're presenting, it really doesn't matter what the contrast does to your kidneys. And so this is a nuanced conversation. I don't mean to play light to it, but often I'll say, okay, I understand they have an AKI, but we really gotta get this scanned because it's gonna be the difference between knowing what to do in the operating room and not. So, I mean, Craig, what do you see? You, you see this patient, you're the, resident that's going to be called about this. Um, are you asking for some more additional workup before you call me or are you just waking me up with the details you get on the phone? Yeah, I, you know, um, I struggle with this as a junior resident a lot thinking, you know, do we need anything else trying to set things up in the best way to have, you know, a one conversation with the attending and be able to staff it and get a move on. In this case, I actually think we have everything we need. Um, when we talked about the CT scan, the, the reality is, is that a lot of the findings on a CT scan actually are if you can see an, an embolus in the SMA with, you know, actual occlusion there, 
you don't need anything else. And that it, it, for two reasons, there's kind of this diagnostic uncertainty picture where, yeah, if you need, if you don't quite know what's going on, maybe the patient's presentation doesn't really fit that sort of thing, then you might get some more imaging or something like that in that scenario. Um, or for treatment planning, which in this case, again, both of those are pretty much taken care of. We know where the, the thrombus is. We know that the patient has the diagnosis that we're talking about. And I think that um, we're ready to go to the OR. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Don't delay getting to the OR. And so this is the type of case that if you saw this, I wouldn't be unhappy when you called if you said, hey, I've already started mobilizing the OR. And in particular, if you said I started mobilizing a hybrid room, namely one with fluoroscopic capabilities. And that can either be a true hybrid room or if you've got a robust enough setup where you can bring in a C-arm. Now, I will, I will tell you in these cases, the radiation needed to be generated to go through the belly is different than what you have to go through the leg. So it's gotta be a good C-arm because you may not get the type of picture that you're looking for if your setup is, is kind of marginal. And so it's not the C-arm that you're gonna have the same orthopedic team do with the low-dose radiation. Um, the other really important point of this is these findings, high lactate, lactemia, while it's not the point, or uh, leukocytosis, while it's not the point of this discussion, these are the type of things that you should be talking to the patient's family about an outcome that you're very worried about. You need to get them ready for the sense that this patient will not come out of the OR awake. They'll come out of the OR with some sort of temporary abdominal closure, be that an aptherovac or whatever your abdominal closure of choices, and they're gonna be in the ICU, and this they're gonna be in it for the long haul. And I think that preparation is, is necessary because these are multi-case hospitalizations. They're getting taken back two or three times at least. Yeah, I, you know, the, you bring up a critical point, which is we talk about the arterial occlusion, but we're not talking about what's happening to the end organ, the gut here, right? And, and we, we've mentioned these, these things like leukocytosis, AKI, lactic acidosis, as signs that something bad is going on, quote unquote, but what that badness is, is that gut is dying. And so it turns out that the CT scan isn't really that great at determining whether that's the case or not. It's not a particularly sensitive nor specific study for bowel compromise. In fact, the most common signs on a CT scan is, a, is some free fluid and mesenteric edema, mesenteric edema, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's not sensitive or specific enough to decide that there is or is not irreversible gut damage. And so in this particular patient, you know, the clinical presentation is concerning for bowel compromise. And I think, like you said, Bobby, really sets up the conversation with the family more so than any imaging findings. I think as we kind of continue down this patient's course, I think a couple other things we've talked about, once you get that CT scan back, you need to start mobilizing the OR. You kind, you pretty much have a diagnosis of that. And we talked about the high concern and potential outcomes for this and the acuity of the situation. A couple things to consider both on the CT scan and how, what do you do with the patient until you can get them to the OR for definitive therapy. I mean, I think first and foremost, anytime you have an arterial embolic event, we talked about this in our acute limb ischemia case, is heparinization, an early and prompt bolus as well as an infusion of heparin to anticoagulate them and prevent any further occlusion or embolization um, to try to save any of the viable intestinal contents or small bowel that are left is really, really important. So why that patient's sitting down in the ED, why they're getting the OR mobilized, you have to stress the importance of anticoagulation and getting that started promptly. I think the other aspect that you can think about as you're starting to consider mobilization of the OR and what operation you want to do and how to best approach this is where your occlusion is at and what that can tell you about the potential cause of the um, arterial, arterial occlusion. And what I mean by that is 
People can present with either an embolic event, as in we believe this patient did, and typically that embolism lodges not at the origin of the SMA, but distally into the SMA past typically the takeoff of the minocolic. And as such, you can see that a little different on the uh, CT scan finding. In contrast, patients who have more of a chronic mesenteric ischemia, which have in situ thrombosis, those patients on the CT scan will typically have a rock of calcium around their SMA origin. And they were living their life off of minimal flow through that narrowing in the SMA. And then either because of dehydration or because of a dialysis run or some insult, their blood pressure dropped and they incite to thrombose that SMA. And that's what caused them to go down. And I think those two, having an understanding of that, seeing the different pathology on CT scan, that can also lead you to what operation might I want to do or how can I best help this patient. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Um, so, Bobby, why don't you talk about um, the CT scan findings and how you think about that, as well as your different strategy buckets for how to treat these patients with acute mesenteric ischemia? Yeah, I mean, I th- you bring up some really good points, too, about examining the nuances of the CT scan. It's kind of a rare setting, though I'll, I'll say it's not so rare you won't see it at least once or twice a year, where someone has no pathology whatsoever and then all of a sudden just has a, a, a clot. I mean, it happens and you got to be aware of it, but often what you'll find is that proximal SMA or proximal celiac are totally calcified. They've got a lot of atherosclerotic burden that suggests that maybe they've had some underlying disease for a while. Um, and, and that does influence what you got to treat because you got to treat that, that osteo narrowing. And so whenever I get these calls from either the residents or the ED directly about someone who's got mesenteric ischemia and has got CT scan findings concerning for portal venous gas, as well as an arterial occlusion, my first call is to the operating room. And I typically prefer that we go to a hybrid room because I think it gives us more capabilities, even if we anticipate doing the entire operation open. And then my second call is actually to the general surgeons. And I think doing a multidisciplinary approach with this has been shown to improve the outcomes. I mean, listen, I went to general surgery residency and remain general surgery board certified, but I'm also humble enough to know that my mind's not on the gut at that point. It is in the sense that I want the gut to survive, but my mind is how do I get blood there quicker? And so I need someone who's focused directly on that. So what those conversations will usually stem around are, does the person need an X-lap or a diagnostic laparoscopy? If there's finding of arterial occlusion without the frank findings of pneumatosis, portal venous air, or God forbid, a free rupture of some sort of um, hollow viscous, then I just have them put in a scope if they feel comfortable doing it. And it's got to be someone who feels comfortable running the entire bowel. Our, you know, all of our general surgeons are excellent laparoscopists, and so they feel really comfortable doing that. If it's the findings like this scan, which are just frankly concerning, then we'll do an X-lab. And my mind in that period is going around how I'm going to fix it. If there's osteal disease, I'd love to see if I could do something endovascular first. And so the way that I think about that is I usually think about coming from the arm 
In these acute settings, it's just a lot easier. The angle straight to the SMA is a lot quicker when you're coming from the arm. It does usually involve a brachial cut down because most of our covered stents go through seven French sheets and I don't feel comfortable putting in anything larger than a six French sheet in the brachial artery and just holding pressure. Um, our closure devices aren't typically used in the brachial sheet system because even just a little bit of blood or that expanding foam that goes out from like a minx or something can be enough to cause a, a brachial sheath compression and ultimately result in median nerve neuropathy. And so I'm doing a cut down on the arm. I usually ask to leave their left arm out because it makes it the easiest angle. We're thinking that we're building long systems. So I'm pulling usually a glide wire so I can traverse the the subclavian artery into the descending thoracic aorta first. The patient's heparinized immediately. I don't stop the heparin for the OR. That's in twofold because I don't want the arterial process within the, the gut mesentery to get worse, but I also don't like really putting sheets and everything past the vert in a patient who's now a vascopath, you know, and um, without being heparinized. I'll start with a pigtail catheter positioned in the thoracic aorta, and then I'll shoot my angiogram. Most typically, patients who come in with an acute ischemic insult like this that have no chronic mesenteric ischemia will have an SMA lesion. If they have some chronic mesenteric ischemia, they may have an SMA and celiac lesion. The celiac is a bonus if you get it. I want to, my big target is for revascularizing the SMA preferentially if I can. Depending on the pathology, you have a couple different options. The penumbra system, which is a mechanical aspiration thrombectomy catheter, can be used to aspirate the clot out if it's acute. Um, if it's an in situ thrombus, you may hold off on aspirating anything out. You might just try to stent, knowing that um, you know the balloon expandable stents, which tend to be the most helpful, the balloon expandable covered stents, which tend to be the most helpful in calcific disease, they will expand on the balloon at areas where the tension is the lowest. And so if you have them positioned beyond where the tip of the stent is beyond the area of narrowing and the tip of the stent is within the aorta past an area where there's osteolesion, those will expand first. And in that way, it almost traps whatever clot or disease is right there. And then you expand the rest of it. So my, my goal in that regard is just trying to get blood flow back to the intestine as quickly as possible. In this case, when it is, runs the potential for a peak and shriek, I will ask that the general surgeons start their exploratory laparotomy first, because if this is all just frankly dead bowel, then I'm worried that no matter what we do, we're not going to make him, uh, we're not going to save his life. If there's areas of patchy ischemia, then I use the amount of patchy ischemia to just gauge how concerned I am once I revascularize this, that we're about to wash a bunch of bad humors, you know, back into the system and he's going to get profoundly hypotensive. And so the, the tenants are know your access, the groin you can get, but usually the SMA is a downgoing vessel. And unless you use a steerable sheath, like a tour guide, you may run into some issues, especially if there's proximal osteocalcifications and in getting into the vessel and maintaining a good system. So I usually leave the left arm out prep both groins. The abdomen's typically prepped, so I just extend that down to the groins as well. Um, know your access, know your anticipated pathology, whether or not you are, know that you're gonna be stenting across an osteolesion, whether or not you know there's reconstitution. Most typically, the SMA isn't just totally out its entire way, it's out for a proximal segment, and then reconstitutes when some branch vessel comes back in. I try to get a sense of what that branch vessel is. If it's the GDA and I have to cover it, I hope that their celiac is open. 
I try not to cover any branch vessels and it's a little different than when you're doing like SFA disease and you cover a branch vessel because you're that may be going to some muscle. Each of these branches might be going to a segment of intestine and so you got to be cognizant of that. And then know whether or not you're going to be aspirating anything or doing any vessel prep, whether you're going to be doing any balloon angioplasty or aspiration thrombectomy. So those are the big thoughts that I have. But usually it's a conversation with Gen Surge. I mean, dude, you just did an, an open retrograde on the table, first cases in attending, and yeah. talk to me about what was going through your head with that one. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah, and I, like Bobby was saying, we, we get these cases not infrequently, and, and they're a tough case. But I think for the patient in question today that we're talking about, um, because of the severity of the pneumatosis and the portal venous gas, we, we definitely roped in general surgery early on in this process, and we, we took them to a hybrid room um, and actually started out with an X-lap to explore the gut, because there was... A, there was honestly a high chance given the lactate and their presentation on CT scan that this would be a non-survivable injury, unfortunately. Um, luckily, upon getting in there, the patient did have some dusky appearing small bowel net that was approximately 100 centimeters, but no frank perforation into the abdomen of that small bowel portion. So given there was no frank perforation and the concerning for the intestines, we then elected to attempt a revascularization. When I thought about how to approach this patient in a revascularization option, um, as Bobby pointed out, you can approach them from either a hybrid endovascular standpoint or you can approach it from an open acute bypass. Um, so I'll start with kind of the open bypass options to consider just so I'll put it all on the table for the listeners, but then talk about why we chose to do our eventual option. When you think about how to openly revascularize the SMA, you can come from either an anti-grade approach from an aortic bypass using off the supraceliac aorta and then tunnel retropancreatically to the SMA. Um, you can come from a retroaortic approach coming off usually the inferior aorta to the SMA also. Both of these are usually done with prosthetic graft. Um, and last but not least, from an open revascularization option, you can come from a retrograde off the iliac and kind of do a soft C-shape um, bypass coming up to your SMA. Um, in all those cases, they are done with a, um, a prosthetic graft. So always concerned about putting a prosthetic graft in a potentially compromised or infected field with uh, non-viable small bowel as a concern. The other aspect is, I mean, these are sick patients, right? So to do a super celiac cross clamp on the aorta, even if it's a partial side rider, I mean, patients typically cannot tolerate anti-grade aortic cross clamp, or is the aorta too calcified to clamp? You also have to consider the calcification when coming off your iliac artery and using that as your proximal anastomosis. And if you can't sew or clamp that there, none of these are going to be an options. In our specific patient here today, we actually chose to perform a retrograde uh, acute mesenteric uh, stenting. And what that involves is um, access to the SMA distally to the area of occlusion, and then using a wire and catheter combination to retrograde recanalize the SMA. So when you think about how to go in there and expose the SMA, I think this is, is a technique that's important to learn for trainees, whether you're general surgery residents or any type of vascular trainee or even junior faculty coming on board. You need to know how to expeditiously expose the SMA. So typically when I think about exposing the SMA, I, you go in there, you elevate the transverse colon, you usually try to identify the middle colic. And if you can identify the middle colic, that will track you right down to the SMA. So that's one place I start. In patients who have a significant amount of obesity from a, um, abdominal exposure, that can be difficult. The other option to expose the SMA is you can take, the, take down the fourth portion of the duo and then reflect it back towards the patient's right and track that back and you should run into the SMA um, based coming off the aorta there. So I actually do, in this case, I actually did both exposures because then you can actually put your hand underneath the mesentery and feel with your fingertips behind the SMA and your thumb on top of the SMA and you can usually roll it between your fingers in the mesenteric aspect there. 
Of course, the reason you're here is because they don't have flow to the SMA, so you're not going to feel a palpable SMA. You sometimes, if they have severe calcified disease, can actually feel a rock in the SMA from their calcification. It can be helpful to identify where you're going after. But that is typically the mechanism of action right at the base of the mesentery, either by following the middle collop down or refracting the fourth portion of the duo. Once you have a kind of targeted your SMA location, you expose it through the mesentery, and I track it back to get about three to four centimeters of exposure of the SMA and isolate out all the branches coming off the SMA. Again, as Bobby uh, suggested before, it's critical that you don't ligate any of these branches because these branches are what some of the small bowel might be living off of. In our case, once we had exposed the SMA, the patient was heparinized. We then used a micropuncture needle and wire to gain access to the SMA coming retrograde back up towards the aorta. We put in a micropuncture sheath and then used a glide wire in that sheath to recanalize the SMA into the aorta and then advanced a omniflush catheter into the aorta to confirm that we had true aortic and true luminal access. One of the faux pas in this case is sometimes when you're retrograde recanalizing the SMA is you could get into the dissection plane and actually get dissected into the aorta. So before you start putting a larger sheath or before, heaven forbid, before you start stenting, you need to confirm that you are true lumen on the aorta. Um, but once we confirmed we were true lumen on the aorta, coming from true lumen distally on the SMA to true lumen on the aorta, we then advanced a larger sheath and then put a balloon expandable covered stent in the SMA, um, and it flowered that across that area of occlusion in order to restore anti-grade flow to the SMA. Pro once we completed that, we then shot a diagnostic angiogram from the aortic side to confirm robust flow into the SMA and felt pretty comfortable that we restored SMA. The other aspect besides your angiogram is you can actually feel, usually feel a bounding return of pulse from the SMAs um, when you have that open stent. So that's always a good feeling to know how much of an antigrade flow you have in the SMA coming down to hopefully restore blood flow to the viscera. And I got to give kudos to you, Frank. I mean, I think an SMA exposure and an, a thrombosed SMA is one of the hardest exposures you can do in vascular surgery. It's probably one of the easiest to describe in the sense that you just pull up the transverse mesocolon and follow that down. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. you're going into the root of the mesentery and there's crossing veins, there's no pulse, there's a fair bit of lymphatics that are right in there and all of it's kind of tiger country just getting ready. So that can be probably the hardest part of the case, but I agree with you, you know, take a deep breath, take your time, don't ligate branches, you know, you want to restore flow, but you don't want to hurt anything in the process of doing it. And that SMA exposure is actually super helpful if you have um, thrombus in the distal branches, you're going to do the same exact exposure and just pass your embolectomy catheters down each of the branches. And that's what you get. Doing a more distal exposure on any of those branches is usually not, um, it's usually not going to help you all that much because they're too small to pass thrombectomy catheters. So that area, that first five, six centimeters of the SMA that you're talking about exposing, mm -hmm. that is a skill set that's difficult to obtain. And I mean, you rocked it out on this one. I was in the room for it. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, I know. We, we were great. We were grateful for the kind of the ability to expose it and revascularize his aspects. Um, and then continue on this patient's case, uh, like the general surgery team was there. They're, they're a great benefit to work with here. Um, they took out that 100 centimeter small bowel, left him a discontinuity, um, abthera or wound, or, you know, open abdomen left him, we brought him to the ICU. Yeah, as uh, Bobby pointed out at the beginning of this case, this patient was in it for the long haul. Like um, he had multiple returns to the OR, some segmental resections of small bowel, and then eventually they were able to reconnect him and he did recover from that aspect. Um, but it was, a, it was a long process to say, and it's not something that should take lightly when you're preparing either the patient or the family members for this operation and actually the outcomes of it. So I guess, guys, why don't we talk a little bit about 
the data for mesenteric ischemia in terms of any publications or papers in terms of revascularization or talk about the outcomes of the complications just to put the listeners kind of set this all in context. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, hop in. Two things I want to talk about yeah. in addition to that. One, um, you know, we, we, that's, it's obviously very complicated uh, in terms of the anatomy, the actual lesion itself, the decision-making around bypass versus retrograde stenting versus uh, anti-grade endovascular access. All these things are really complicated and obviously are going to be fairly dependent on the patient in front of you. The principles of preoperative and postoperative management I'll touch on really quickly. Okay, good point. Bobby t- talked about it a little bit, but these patients need active resuscitation, right? They're sick oftentimes. And so making sure that you have excellent resuscitation, good IV access, early fluid resuscitation, NG tube decompression, and heparinization are critical. And so those are the kind of preoperative tenants, um, which obviously is much more complicated than that. But just don't forget that for the residents who are listening. If you're calling your attending and you've called the OR, you should make sure they have all the other stuff first. Um, and so it, they can, it can happen in tandem, but you can't forget about it just because you know you're going to the operating room. Postoperatively, these patients can have profound reperfusion injury. And so also they can, like Bobby said, have, they can get hypotensive. They can need an ongoing resuscitation. They almost certainly need an ICU stay. Uh, and for, for monitoring, for ongoing resuscitation, sometimes blood products, things like that. Um, and you got to have a low index, well, high index of suspicion that they have ongoing ischemia and uh, early take backs if necessary. And so having a thoughtful discussion about gen, with gen surge is really critical in this setting. In yeah, term- I, I think you're, you got a good point about that too. You also have to talk to your anesthesiologist in the operating room. Mm-hmm. I've seen more than one patient code when you get the blood flow back. I mean, you're patting yourself on the back and then all of a sudden the patient's hypotensive or they've gotten a cardiac arrhythmia secondary to hyperkalemia from this washout. And so usually give your your anesthesiologist a pretty big heads up that you're gonna be revascularizing and try to give them a timeline. It's one of those things, we, we're at a teaching hospital, we have fantastic anesthesia residents, but I do ask them, in, even in the absence of anything going bad, go ahead and get your staff in the room because this yeah. is gonna, this could be a bumpy ride. You know, you look a little bit like you're, you know, the w- little person who cries wolf if you're, nothing happens. But yeah. when something does happen, you kind of look clairvoyant. Everybody's yeah. like, well, how did you know that was going to happen? You're like, well, I'm looking at a pile full of crappy bowel and I just restored blood flow to it. So it's totally true. Yeah. Nothing good uh, can happen. Real, so Frank touched yeah. on, um, you know, the reality is that because this is so patient dependent, anatomic considerations, underlying comorbidities, degree of ischemia, the data for management of, of, of acute mesenteric ischemia, which also, like Bobby mentioned earlier, is a fairly uncommon cause of abdominal pain, the data is really poor, just as a general rule. And so there really isn't a whole lot out there. Frank, um, th- there was one study that yeah. I think was worth talking about, yeah. um, which is uh, there was a single institution uh, series for retrograde stenting, and, and, and we've, we kind of talk about this certainly in uh, AbSite, things like that mm-hmm. with respect to... Um, options and, and do you want to talk more about that? Paper? Yeah, I think recently there's been a, a couple studies in the past two years that have looked at acute mesenteric ischemia presentation. Um, the most recent study was conducted in 2022 in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, looked at retrograde mesenteric stenting, a single institution study, and the outcomes of that in comparison to open, open bypass. And what it suggested is that the advantages of retrograde mesenteric stenting are from t- twofold. One is that it decreases your operative time and your operative time to revascularization, which I think in this case is crucial. Um, the second is it did show, uh, as we know, that you don't put any prosthetic in it. So the long-term infection risk um, from patients who survive this initial insult and infection of a graft is next to nil. So I think that's an added advantage. 
And, and then the third thing is it showed that for those patients who had vi- uh, survived the initial acute insult of a mesenteric ischemia, the one-year uh, patency of that stent is quite high and above 70%. So I think it's uh, if you can get it o- those patients over this initial insult, either with prompt revascularization, with retrograde mesenteric stenting, I think it's a very viable and good uh, option for these patients. Yeah, I mean, I would say if I had to look at the course of mesenteric ischemia and that retrograde open mesenteric stenting and the popularity thereof will probably be one of the things that helps improve outcomes. And it may be through the technical improvements and being able to get blood flow restored more quickly. Mm-hmm. And you can get your sheath in there and you don't have to worry about some of the limitations of delivering a large sheath that may happen because of subclavian stenosis or groin access. But it's also probably because you're talking about getting teams involved and that may be the, the best thing that helps these patients' outcomes. I mean, what also, what you see is the more you look for more for mesenteric ischemia, the more you find it. And that's a blessing and a curse, honestly, because these are difficult patients to, to manage. Um, one of the, the things that probably influences these patients' outcome in the long term is figuring out why this clot may have occurred and mm-hmm. modifying some of the risk factors that not only affect their mesenteric flow, but are usually cardiovascular risk factors that affect their health. And so, you know, I, I typically think that we we do a pretty exhaustive workup afterwards that in term, you know, we look at hypercoagulability panels. For patients who don't have known atrial thrombus at that time, we'll often do a TTE and recommend they do an agitated saline or bubble study so we can make sure they don't have a PFO such that a, you know, DVT may have been a paradoxical NY. CT angio of the entire aorta, you may have to give it a day or so, let their creatinine stabilize. It's not something that needs to be done acutely, but imaging that thoracic aorta for any known, unknown aneurysmal disease or calcific disease that might have flicked off and caused this. And then often you're having a discussion about how long we keep this anticoagulation on board and, and or dual antiplatelet therapy. Yeah. And there are no data to drive your decision-making regarding dual antiplatelet therapy for stenting of the mesenterics. So a lot of that is, is, is kind of up to you. I think ultimately what determines how well these patients do is stuff that you've said, stuff that Craig said. It's aggressive early management, take backs as needed, put your pride to the side and say, hey, this is looking a lot like my repair maybe didn't fix everything. Let's go back to the operating room. You're bumping a lot of cases. You got to talk to your partners and everything because this is something that once it comes in, kind of influences your next three to five days in terms of what your operative volume is going to look like. And you got to make a pact with both the patient and your team that either you or somebody is going to help manage this so that the patient can get through. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, with that, we'll wrap up. We're, we're uh, pushing time here, but I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, thank Bobby for, for coming and pinch hitting for Nick. And again, congrats, Frank, on a good case and on being an attending. And um, with that, we'll end the episode and uh, dominate the day. Dominate the day. Thanks, guys, for listening. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.